know, it's a cheerful passage for a new year, right? I'm actually going to be preaching out of a much wider spectrum than just the text that I asked Kevin to read. Um, And I will confess to you that this is the first time I have ever preached out of a narrative or out of a, a passage that describes history from the Old Testament. This is really challenging because when I preach from the New Testament, I can distill these are three points that I believe the writer clearly wants to make, and I can try and apply them directly to our lives. And that's the hope that I have every time I preach from the Scriptures, is that I'm faithful to what the writer wants to communicate. When God tells us history or a story, whether it's a parable or something like the passage today that actually happened, you have to try and think about the the parable and understand its meaning And the writer doesn't come out and tell you exactly why he told you the story. So I'm going to confess to you today, I am slightly nervous because the Old Testament is more difficult to preach from for me. So please bear with me. With that said, I don't want to be a preacher that only preaches from the New Testament. God gave us 66 books And I hope by the time I'm dead or he takes me home, whichever way, that I will have faithfully taught something from each of them. And so we've gone through two books in the New Testament. It's time to do a book from the Old Testament. I want to teach from Habakkuk. To do that, I would like to give the historical background for Habakkuk first. So when we turn there next week, we'll have an idea of who Habakkuk was prophesying to and the context for his message. So this morning, we're actually going to be pulling a few verses starting in 2 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to be going all the way through the end of the book. And we'll move pretty quickly, and I'll also pull a few verses from the prophet Jeremiah, because Jeremiah speaks in this time period as well. And I think you can see a little bit of God's heart as he pleads with a rebellious Israel and rebellious Judah to repent before the judgment that he's talked about in the verses that Kevin just read comes. And you can see that God's heart is for his people to repent. The reason that I chose Habakkuk, of all books, to preach through next is because we have just been through 1 John. 1 John helps you know if you have eternal life. And 1 John reminds us that God is love. And after 1 John, we went through the book of Jude. And Jude, although it contains warnings, and it it tells that God will judge wickedness and punish sin, Jude also gives the good hope that God is able to keep those who have trusted him, that God is able to protect those. Although we will go through times of testing and trial, and although the dangers of false teaching have been with the church and will be with the church until the Lord returns, we have the confidence that our God is strong and able to keep us as we trust in him and as we believe in Jesus Christ. So John tells us God loves us and that God is love. Jude tells us God can keep us. And Habakkuk 
tells us that in the midst of suffering, God is in control. Habakkuk tells us that in the midst of suffering, God is in control. And my hope is that as we go through this book, your confidence in God's sovereign will will increase. And that no matter what you're called to, whether it's physical suffering or whether it's the fearful times that we live in, we will have confidence that God is in complete control. And not only is he in control, but we can have joy in the midst of suffering. We can be like Paul and and say, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you've believed in the gospel we read about in 1 John, and you're aware of the temptations that are part of life from Jude, then you need to be prepared to trust God through the trials that we know will come on all of us. And that's what I hope that we take away from Habakkuk. You might be tempted to think at times that trials and suffering come because God isn't in control. That somehow he can't stop evil and so he just manages cleanup in an out-of-control world. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's from Proverbs 21, verse 1. In other words, God controls the hearts of even men like Vladimir Putin and Barack Obama from all over the world. The heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of God. There is nothing that is beyond his control. And my hope is to instill confidence in God's incredible power. To know that God moves history itself. And he invites us to fellowship with him in good times and in bad times. Since we've just come through Christmas, I'll mention this before I go to the text. Remember that Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem because of a census. That the entire Roman world was inconvenienced so that God could move two people to the hometown that Jesus needed to be born in. God moves nations to accomplish his will for for people that to the world seem small and insignificant. And he does the same for you, and he does the same for me. And my hope is that we will have confidence through the trials of life. To appreciate how God moves history and to set the stage for the journey through the short book of Habakkuk, it's actually only three chapters, I want to take this week to remind you of the time that Habakkuk lived and prophesied in. And bear in mind that Paul is very clear that Israel's history serves the church to tell us about who God is. There are truths here that we need. So this is not just a a background week and we'll do the application next week. There are things today that we need to learn from Israel's history. So, real quick, we're going to cover about 500 years of history in about five minutes. First, I'm not going to start with Moses. We're already in Israel 
David unites Israel. He's actually the second king, but he's the first king to really unite the country. And he fights wars to make that happen. He, he expands Israel's territory. He makes Jerusalem the capital city. He brings the ark of God there and establishes worship in Jerusalem. Solomon, his son, builds a massive temple and the kingdom grows under his rule. But Solomon is the last king to rule a united Israel. There are only two kings that rule the entire nation. Solomon's son Rehoboam was cruel and harsh and split the country in two. So that the northern kingdom is called Israel and the southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom immediately falls into idolatry. The king that rules the north says he doesn't want his people going to the southern kingdom to worship. So he establishes his own religion and rejects everything that God tells him. God says, I'll establish you as a new line of king. Your, your children can rule the country. And he rejects God's offer, sets up an idol, and immediately the northern kingdom falls into idolatry and they never recover. There is not a single godly king that ever rules in the northern kingdom. God warns the northern kingdom repeatedly that if they don't repent, he will send judgment on them. And some of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament, men like Elijah, who calls down fire on the prophets of Baal. Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom. He's part of God's team that sends the message, you need to repent. Be faithful to the covenant that you swore under Moses. Be faithful to to the scriptures, be faithful to the law, and they reject all of God's prophets. They enter immediate and steady spiritual and moral decline from which they never recover. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom, called Judah, is on a roller coaster of revival and backsliding. If, if you grew up in, in a church that, that had revivals, you might be familiar with this cycle personally, where every year you have revival and enthusiastic commitment to the Lord, and then it kind of tapers off for the rest of the year until you have another revival and you recommit your life to the Lord. That happened on a national scale for Judah. And while Habakkuk is writing, he is writing to the southern kingdom. He is writing to Judah. And Assyria is the, the local superpower. They, they are the global, they, they are the, the big kid on the block, if you will. Their capital city is Nineveh, which you should remember from books like Jonah. Assyria is to the northeast of Israel. And they are remembered as being a particularly cruel people. What they would do is they would conquer their neighbors, and then force them into slave labor. And they would deport thousands of people and make them farm. Their, their plan was actually they wanted to take you and put you in a country that as far as the, the plants and as far as agriculture was almost the same as your own country because they wanted efficiency. They wanted good farmers to make them rich. And so they deported thousands and thousands of Israelites from the north as God judged the north and took Israel into captivity. They come up all the way to Judah, to the southern kingdom, 
as their conquest and as their power increases, and as they take over more and more of the Middle East, and that's where we actually pick up the story today in 2 Kings. And we're actually going to read from chapter 19, but the story starts in chapter 18. The king of Assyria at that time, his name is Sennacherib. And Sennacherib comes right up to Jerusalem. And he sends messengers, and he says to them, you will be no different than any other country I have conquered. And you have to understand that military conquest in that time was profoundly theological. Much like Muslims today claim, if they take a country, it's because Allah has given it to them and it's theirs forever. Assyrians believed if they took a country, it was because the gods of that country were weak. And Assyria had already conquered northern Israel, and so they felt like, we've already beaten this god, he's weak. And so Sennacherib sends a messenger to the king of Judah, to Hezekiah, and he says, you will be no different than any other country that Assyria has conquered. And we can read some of his message in chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Sennacherib's messenger says, Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my father destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezif, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of Sepharvim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? And his implication is, they are destroyed. And now, put yourself in the shoes of someone who lives in Jerusalem at that time. As Assyria grows in dominance and power, and as you watch your brothers to the north fall, you may very well believe that God is not in control. And you may wonder if God is powerful enough to stop the Assyrians. And Hezekiah is scared to death. And he cries out to God. One of the things that I hope that you take from today, and this is one of my main points if you're a note taker, one of the points that I hope that you take home today is that even in the face of the strongest nation on earth, God is stronger. No matter how strong your enemies appear, God is stronger than your enemies. Hezekiah prays, and, and goes to the Lord and remains faithful. The temptation for all of these kings as they face foreign powers is to try and make alliances. And you see Israel do that, and you see Judah do it later with Egypt. And they attempt to, to get an ally and in human strength to defeat these enemies. But Hezekiah doesn't do that. He goes straight to the Lord. He runs to the temple and he prays to God and said, God, you have heard what Sennacherib has said. He has assaulted your honor and character. Help. And the prophet Isaiah that we were reading for Christmas time, Isaiah prophesies during Hezekiah's reign. And Isaiah comes back with this word from God. And you can read it starting in verse 21. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read 21 through 28 of chapter 19 here. This is what the Lord has spoken concerning the king of Assyria. 
She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains. To the far recesses of Lebanon I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. But have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted from before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. God says you will not touch Jerusalem. And at the end of this chapter, we read that God sends an angel and destroys the Assyrian army. That miraculously, without the armies of Judah raising a finger, Assyria is defeated and Sennacherib tucks tail and runs home. Parenthetically, I want to mention this. Sometimes as we read the Old Testament, I think it's tempting to think, did this even happen? How do I know this is really real? If you go to Hyde Park in Chicago on the south side, and visit the University of Chicago. They have a museum that has ancient Near Eastern history in it. And you can see a clay cylinder that's about this large. What it is, before they had printing presses, when kings wanted to mass produce information, they carved it backwards on clay, and they would use it as a rubber stamp and make a document from that clay. And if they were doing a cylinder, they would roll it out. They have a lot of cylinders like that there. One in particular is on a pedestal, and it tells Sennacherib's half of this story. So you can read the biblical half here. If you go to Chicago, you do have to speak the language. I don't. Fortunately, they translated it. Sennacherib, as a proud, arrogant Assyrian king, tells all of his exploits. Tells how he conquered king after king after king. Very much like he comes to Hezekiah and says, all of these kings are gone. Where do you think you'll be? And on this clay tablet, in Sennacherib's own words, he says, and I shut Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage. It's the most anticlimactic ending you could ever hope for. As this conquering king tells how he slaughters armies and how he raises cities mysteriously, when he gets to Jerusalem, he doesn't do it. He just decides, I'm just going to go home now. And so if you read the biblical account and you wonder, did this really happen? You can look at Sennacherib's side of the story. He's not going to tell you, I lost my army and had to go home. He's going to tell you, and I, I shut him up like a bird in a cage. But the biblical account stands true. Sennacherib never conquered Jerusalem, and he'll even admit it. But we know that biblically, 
the reason he didn't, it wasn't because Jerusalem was a strong city with a huge army. They were really probably one of the weakest countries in the area. And yet, God said, you will not touch Jerusalem. And he had to turn around and run home. My hope today is that you'll have confidence that God is bigger than your enemies. No matter what you face, whether it's sin or temptation, whether it's the loss of a job, whether it's failing health, God is bigger than your enemies, and he will carry you through it. It'd be nice if we could kind of end the message here, but you all heard what Kevin read, so we're still we're going to continue on a little bit more. Hezekiah, in some ways, is a good king. He goes to God when he has problems, and he deals to an extent with the idol worship that existed in Judah. He's one of the good guys. And yet, his story contains two more things. For, for some of the kings that, that are recorded here, you hear the highlights of their lives. And then for Hezekiah, after you hear of this amazing, life-changing victory, there are two more things that you find out about him. And they seem, by comparison, insignificant. And yet I think that we're, we have really important lessons to learn from him today. So in chapter 20, Hezekiah is told by the prophet Isaiah, you're sick and you will die. Put your house in order. And Hezekiah, not ready to die, goes to the Lord and says, God, save me. Extend my life. And Isaiah, before he's even out of the palace, God tells him, turn around, go back, talk to the king. His life is going to be spared. I'm going to give him 15 more years. And while on one sense you might think this is a very encouraging thing. Look, this is a king that says, God, I need more life, and God gives it to him. And it is exciting to see answered prayer. And yet, in that 15 years, Hezekiah has a son who is the most wicked king in all of Israel's history. And you get the impression that perhaps it would have been better if Hezekiah said, okay, Lord, it's my time to go. Help me be ready. But instead, he says to the Lord, I'm not ready. I need you to change this. Now, I believe God is sovereign, but I do believe this is how prayer works. He allows us to participate in what he's doing. And so he honors Hezekiah's request. And if you think maybe I'm being harsh on him, that he shouldn't have asked for this, there's one more story that I think really seals the deal on Hezekiah's character. And it seems that he's a king that cares about his own comfort and prosperity, but does not genuinely care about the welfare of the nation. And you can read that in the latter half of chapter 20. The writer describes how Babylon, which at that time was a large city, but was not the country that you think of when Daniel is taken off to Babylon. At that time, Assyria is the superpower, and Babylon is sort of the new kid on the block, and they're not that powerful yet. They're an up-and-coming country, and Babylon sends emissaries to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah rolls out the red carpet for him, welcomes them into the city, and shows them absolutely everything. He takes them into the temple. He shows them the gold that's in the temple. He shows them his armory. He shows them the wealth of the nation. Probably pridefully. 
And Isaiah runs to Hezekiah and says, what did you just do? Who are these men? What did you tell them? And Hezekiah said, oh, I showed them everything. And Isaiah says this in verse 16 of chapter 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all of it is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And you would think Hezekiah would fall to his knees and repent immediately and say, God, what have I done? But instead, read what he says in verse 19. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Why not if there will be peace and security in my days? As I read about Hezekiah, I'm struck with the fact that I do not want to be like this man. I believe that we, we are in dangerous territory if we only care about ourselves and peace and security in our own days. That it's a far greater thing to risk your own safety for the sake of reaching the lost. And so the second point that I'd like to make today is that God's strength does not always mean that we will enjoy peace and prosperity. God's strength does not always mean that we will enjoy peace and prosperity. The warning signs of Judah's decline are evident during Hezekiah's life. But you can see the rapid decline of Judah shortly after Hezekiah dies. And you find out about the reign of Manasseh and the, the passage that Kevin actually read already this morning. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it again. We'll just look at the last two verses, starting in verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Manasseh does things that are so wicked, God says, there is no turning back for, for Israel or Jerusalem. My judgment will come on them. It's just a matter of when. And yet, and yet, the king immediately after Manasseh, I should say, Josiah is Manasseh's grandson. Amon is wicked like Manasseh. He dies after two years. After Amon, Josiah is the most godly king in all of Israeli's history. And I, I say that with the knowledge that David is a man after God's own heart. But Josiah is the only king in Israel's history to ever observe Passover. And it pleased God. There are a few verses that I want to highlight from his life. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 2 describes his character. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He had character and conviction and he never wavered. 
during Josiah's reign, he begins to, to repair the temple that had fallen into disrepair and disuse. Because Manasseh reigned for over 50 years, and after 50 years, there wasn't much left of the temple that Solomon had built. And Josiah discovers the book of the law. They had entirely lost it, and no one knew what it said anymore. And so they discover it, and they start to read it. And Josiah realizes the depth of sin, and that God says he will punish Israel if they fall into the sins that they have committed. And so, starting in in verse 13 of chapter 22, Josiah says, inquire of the Lord for me. Verse 13, chapter 22. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah does not make excuses. He doesn't say, it was my grandfather, it wasn't me. He takes full responsibility for the sin of the country. And he repents and says, what will the Lord do? And you can read the Lord's reply in verse 16. God says, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and have wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. God says, because you have repented, you will not see the judgment that I'm going to bring. But there is no going back. And that's the third thing that I want to bring to your attention today to remind you of that sometimes even after repentance, sin still has consequences. Sometimes even after repentance, sin still has consequences. As I think about the country that we live in, the place that we're at today in America, there are people that are hopeful because of the last election and and perhaps we should be somewhat hopeful. And yet I want to say, if we do not repent of our sins, God will not bless us. We should not be seeking wealth and security for ourselves and for our children at the expense of true repentance. And I want to urge you this morning to consider the difference between Hezekiah and Josiah. Hezekiah says, at least there's peace in my time, Josiah tears his clothes and weeps and says, we deserve this punishment, God. What do we do? Through the book of Habakkuk, I want to bring you the incredible encouragement that no matter what God calls us through in the city of Holly or or in the state of Michigan or the country that we live in, God can give you incredible joy 
in the midst of deep suffering, in the midst of global uncertainties. Can you imagine, you could maybe say that the closest thing that we have to an Assyria today is maybe Russia. I say that because they're the only large global superpower, maybe China. The, the, the Muslim terrorists that we face are not an organized, strong country. They're terrifying, but they're not a country. And so if you think of the largest superpower, maybe China, maybe Russia, but can you imagine the terror of them invading? Some of you were alive and, and may remember when you were small what happened at Pearl Harbor when the Japanese bombed. Can you imagine the terror of an invasion that actually comes on the shores of your own country? These are global powers that these kings and prophets are dealing with. And I want to suggest that they give us the encouragement and comfort that even when Assyria is coming, even when it's on its way, even when Isaiah says Babylon will cause Jerusalem to fall, even when we know that dark times are ahead, we can have confidence and hope and joy. And we can say with Paul that I have learned the secret of contentment. That's my hope for going through Habakkuk. I want to urge you today, if the Spirit has convicted you in any way, that you should deal with sin today. We're about to take communion, and I I would encourage you to use the time of prayer as a time to talk to the Lord. And I want to urge you to be faithful to witness to your friends, your loved ones, your neighbors, your enemies, to know that the good news of Jesus Christ is available, and we need to take advantage of it now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are bigger than any nation. Lord, I ask that you would bless us with strong faith. Pray that we would be faithful witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.